0: This week, uh, we had uh, one of uh, the best nights of the year, most important nights of the year, was Winter Song. Who all was there? We had anybody there? Lots of you? Um, Give it up for Justin and everybody else who pulled that off. Uh, It's one of my favorite nights of the year, uh, not just because of what happens, but because it's the biggest night of the year uh, (laughs) uh, for us in terms of people, and I know just as much of what's going on as you do. When I walk into the room, I literally like what was on the what was on the sheet of paper. I'd never seen any of that uh, until I walked in, just like you. And it really is a testament to Justin's leadership. So, thank you, brother. Um, all right, let's read our text. We'll jump right in today, uh, Luke chapter two. Uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know uh, we've been going through the book of Luke. Uh, we started in uh, Luke chapter one, verse one. And uh, here we are at the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. So here we go. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I don't know about you, but uh, when I was growing up, I grew up around the church and uh, before we opened presents on Christmas morning, my mom and dad always made us read, uh, starting here in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we would read through verse 20. And I always wondered when we would read those uh, verses, what in the world those first three verses were really all about. It was a bunch of stuff I I didn't give much mention to. I mean, Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius, Syria, Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, Bethlehem. Who really cares? Then, alongside these mentions of, 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 of these names, of places and people, uh, we hear about this boring census registration. We hear it four times in five verses, this census registration. And it sounds like a bunch of useless detail, doesn't it? I'd rather have a lot of details about the innkeeper. I want to know more about how Mary and Joseph felt about this whole situation. So we have to ask ourselves, why are these historical markers so important for Luke to include in this account? Well, I think it's because we need to know that this is not a myth or a legend. Luke didn't start this account with once upon a time. Luke didn't start this account with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Rather, he uses these historical markers... Because his first century audience could verify and connect with them. And it helps us, it helps him accomplish the purpose for his writing. Remember, chapter 1, verse 4, he gives us his purpose for writing. And he says that those who would read it, those who would hear it might have certainty. And when you give historical details, it helps achieve this end, this end of certainty. And maybe certainty is what you need this morning. Even though these historical events, they don't mean much to you like they did for Luke's first century audience. You don't know who Quirinius is. Syria, Galilee, and Nazareth aren't especially relevant geographic markers in your everyday life. Yet the historical details are necessary in order to have certainty. Think about it. If Jesus was a myth, if Jesus was a legend, then Christmas is just inspirational. Christmas is just sentimental. Sentimental. And your sentimentality and your inspiration will fade very quickly when our fear about something being wrong in the world jumps on our back like a 500-pound gorilla. And that fear is understandable. Even in 2021 with all of our technology, I mean, you would understand Mary and Joseph's fear, and we can subdue that and we can what what would we really have to be afraid of in 2021? But think about it. A hacker could get into our financial system and it'd be gone in a moment's instance. We've got the threat of nuclear warfare in a way that the first century did it. Cancer lurks behind every corner for us. And Christmas as myth doesn't have anything to say to hackers, to nuclear warfare... Or to cancer. But Christmas as history does. There's a whole lot more we could say about this. And if you want to know more about the historicity of Jesus, I'd encourage you to read this little bitty book. It's a little bitty book called Jesus, a very short introduction. Uh, it's written by uh, a scholar named Richard Bachham, and it's, uh, it's published by Oxford Press. And if you're struggling for certainty, I encourage you to get into that. But maybe the academic bend is not your thing. You still need historical fact to deal with this cruel world that we live in. And it all starts with Jesus coming as a baby. All right, that is the first three or four verses. Let's head into verse four and following. In these verses, uh, you get these two extremes. You have God on one end of the extreme and you've got a baby and a manger on the other. They really represent Jesus' two natures, don't they? Jesus is fully God and Jesus as fully man, married into one person. So let's consider both. Let's start with his divine nature. If you've been with us, you know that in Luke 1, we get some hints at his divine nature. One is his, virgin, is, his, is his virgin birth. He's being miraculously conceived. Then we had him as a fetus and he enters the room. And in utero, John jumps with joy. In Elizabeth's womb. You have Elizabeth who exclaims his divine nature. You have Zechariah exclaiming his divine nature. You have Mary singing about Jesus' divine nature. Then you have in our passage, you've got this double mention of David in verse 4. Do you see it? Not only do you have the mention of David here, you had the mention of David in our Old Testament reading. You get the mention of David in chapter 1 of Luke 2, verse 32 and verse 69. And all these mentions of David harken heark- back to a promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised him that someone from his line would forever sit on his throne as the king of God's people. And so what Luke is telling us here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that Jesus will be the fulfillment of this promise. So Luke is emphasizing his royal, his divine nature when he's mentioning David all these times. And then in verse 7, you see that Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son. That mention of firstborn should trigger something for you if you're familiar with your Bible. In Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is called the firstborn, not just of Mary, but of the whole new creation. Redemption starts with Jesus. Jesus is God's only begotten Son. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the supreme ruler of all that lives. He's the one who was promised to Eve. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the embodiment of the law of Moses. He's prophesied about by the prophets. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the radiance of his Father's glory. He's all seeing, he's all knowing, he's all powerful. And so when he's born, he deserves every person from every nation come and observe his birth. He deserves every creature, the marmots, the elephants, and the beetles to come and view his birth. He deserves all of creation. He deserves the rocks to cry out, the solar system to dance all at the night of his arrival. This is not the scene that's pictured for us in Luke 2, is it? This is not what accompanies his arrival into the world. Instead, we have the arrival that's very normal. It's quite human, in fact. Why? To emphasize Jesus' human nature. I mean, look at his parents. His parents are members of an oppressed people. The Jews, they're being forced to pay taxes to an unjust government. His parents are poor. They have no money. They have no network of relationships to leverage for them to get a room for the night. And here, where he is born, he's not born in the privacy and comfort of his own home. Instead, his parents have to travel a hundred miles only to be rejected by an innkeeper. And Mary has to give birth in a cattle stall and then lay her baby in an animal feeding trough. See, Jesus enters the world in about the most uncomfortable, messy way possible. Andrew Peterson, singer-songwriter, he has a song about Jesus' birth, and it goes like this. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry. In the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town and the stable was not clean, the cobblestones were cold and little Mary full of grace with the tears upon her face had no mother's hand to hold. But here Jesus is. He's born into poverty, obscurity, indignity, pain, And yes, even rejection. So one of the great mysteries of the world is that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn. This just doesn't line up with our expectations, does it? What lines up with our expectations is much more in line with what I heard about with Amazon. Amazon. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Amazon was looking for its second headquarters. You know, its first headquarters is in Seattle. Uh, the second headquarters, they, they, they put, out a, a, put out a notice that they were going to build one, and they encouraged cities to apply that, that, that they might build their second headquarters in their city. So 238 cities applied to Amazon. And Amazon picked 20 of these 238 cities, and they went to each of these 20 cities for a 24-hour tour. In each of these 20 cities, they went all out. They whined and dined Amazon like you wouldn't believe. One of the cities was Indianapolis. And the day before uh, the Amazon executives showed up in their city, uh, they picked up all the trash on the roads from the 11 miles from the airport to their first stop. That's red carpet treatment, isn't it? I mean, cities were going to do whatever it took to impress the second highest-grossing company in the U.S. to come to their place. Think about the birth of uh, Prince William and Lady Catherine's first child, George. When he was born, there were 21 gun salutes that signaled his coming in both New Zealand and Bermuda. The bells of Westminster Abbey and many other churches were rung the day he was born. You had various landmarks across all of Britain that were illuminated in blue to signify his birth. So, George was welcomed into the world with a claim because he's kind of a big deal. So, wouldn't you expect the same with Jesus? This isn't the pattern for Jesus' birth or even the whole rest of his life. He came as a suffering servant to die, to die for the sins of the world. And Luke is signaling that in verse 7. I want you to look at verse 7. As you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Luke 23, 53, 2. And in verse 7, you see that Jesus is wrapped in what? What's he wrapped in? Swaddling clothes. Look at twenty-three fifty-three. What's he wrapped in at his death? A linen shroud. Look what he's laid in in verse 7, chapter 2. He's laid in a manger. At his death, he's laid in a tomb. You think about the scene of Luke 2, you see that he's born into this isolated obscurity. At his death, he's isolated because everyone's abandoning. At his birth, he's rejected just by an innkeeper. At his death, He's rejected by his Father. See, Jesus' humiliation is how he exalted us. Jesus' rejection is how he accepted us. And Jesus joyfully chose this humiliation. He joyfully chose this rejection because that was the only way to save you and to save me. You and I, are the, we're the ones who deserve to be humiliated, aren't we? I mean, we're the ones who committed cosmic treason. We're the ones who revolted against our gracious creator. We rejected his tender care. Now, I know your rejection might not look like all-out hostility, but think about the innkeeper. The innkeeper was probably a card-carrying Jew, and he would have never has classified himself as a God-rejector. He's not an atheist, likely. He's not a Roman fanboy either, likely. Yet we're just like him. We don't have room. For Jesus. We don't have room for him in our affections, in our thoughts, in our calendars, in our choices. That's why John 1:11 says, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's me and you. We are his own because he made us. We bear his signature. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that we have eternity written on our hearts meaning that we long for something so much more than this temporal world can provide. And every time we go to the temporal world to fill that void, it just doesn't work. And every time we do it, we reject our creator who loved us, who loved us enough to wrap himself in swaddling clothes, to wrap himself in a linen shroud, to be laid in an animal feeding trough, to be laid in an empty tomb and brother and sister that's love that's Christmas and that's so much more than nostalgia it's so much more than sappy tradition and it's powerful it's powerful enough to transform you and me from rejectors of God into friends of God and this is the good news of Christmas And when we see Jesus' humiliation, when we see the rejection at his birth and in his life and then at his death, it causes us to reflect on how much he loves us. But it also causes us to do some reflection on how we are to live. And when we do that reflection, I think what we'll see is that our lives need some revision. What we've got to see is that the way up is down. We've got to see that humiliation, that humility... Is what leads to greatness. But doesn't that contradict the way you and I live every day? I mean, greatness in God's economy, it's not equivalent to brand power. It has nothing to do with social media following. Greatness in God's economy has nothing to do with your pedigree. It has no, n- nothing to do with the success of the family from which you came. Greatness in God's economy has nothing to do with financial success, what's in your bank account. Greatness in God's economy has nothing to do with your physical appearance, the number on the scale, your measurements. Greatness in God's economy has nothing to do with your educational achievements, has nothing to do with your career achievements, what's on your LinkedIn profile. So all this makes us wonder, why do we give so much worth to these kinds of things? The scene in Luke 2, it makes us value what we've been talking about for weeks now. It makes us value humility. Humility is this inner quality that has infinite value. Think about it. Humility is what you need to repent. Humility is what you need to love other people. Humility is what you need to come to worship today. Humility is what you're going to need tomorrow, tomorrow to abide in Jesus. So, brother and sister, I pray that this Christmas season, that we pursue this life of humility. As we pursue our humble Savior who loves us, let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you have mercy on us? Lord, for we have a very different working definition of greatness than you do. Oh, Lord, would you revise not just that thinking, but our whole life. And Lord, may we see uh, that you loved us enough, even as we have these wrong definitions of greatness, to come for us and to come in a humble way. Thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.